my son just asked me, how long are we going to be in Ephesians? And I said, as long as I want us to be. We are working our way through this book. Uh, we'll be in it a couple more months, so don't lose steam like my son did. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, we enter into a new chapter. Remember, the whole second half of Ephesians is the more practical section. The first three chapters are more heavy theologically. The next three chapters are much more practical. And so today we get into, again, another passage that Paul is addressing behavior that is appropriate or inappropriate for followers of Jesus. So another passage that focuses a lot on the holiness that we as Christians should exhibit. Many of you have probably heard of this phrase before, that there's nothing new under the sun. Are you familiar with that phrase? This is the idea that basically none of us come up with anything new. It's all been done before. Uh, no one really comes up with anything that has not been tried at some point in time. So as I'm reading all these books as a new pastor trying to learn how to pastor a church, I'm reading all these books, and basically all these books are telling me to do the things that churches have done for millennium. That is, read Scripture, confess sin, teach expositionally, lower the volume of the band, and raise the volume of the voices in the room, right? These are all things that the church, since Jesus ascended and the church was formed by the early disciples, these are all things that the churches have done. There's really nothing new under the sun. In addition, we do something with our children that is called catechesis. It's basically just a fancy word for teaching doctrine, teaching theology to your children through some systematic format like question and answer. That's also not new. It's something that the church has done for literally hundreds and hundreds of years. So when we read this passage today, you might be thinking, there's really nothing earth-shattering that Paul talks about. He says, avoid sin and pursue holiness. There's, there's nothing new under the sun. As followers of Jesus, all 66 books, in some way, shape, or form, basically have that message. Pursue holiness and turn away from your sin and confess your sin before God. So there is a lot in these passages that we've been reading the last few weeks where it seems like Paul is repeating himself over and over again. That's because he is. Because we need to constantly remember how important our holiness is before a holy God. So as we work our way through the text this morning, and as we work our way through the Bible reading plan that we've been going through as a church... You probably picked up on this in Leviticus and Numbers how important holiness was to God and how important it was for his called people, his set-aside people to also be holy before God. So this morning, the points are very simple. Number one, imitate God. Number two, reject immorality. And number three, avoid deception. Number one, imitate God. Number two, reject immorality. And number three, avoid deception. Number one, imitate God. Look in verse one of chapter five. What do you see there that we see all the time in this letter? Therefore, what have you learned about that word that you need to go back and figure out why Paul is saying it? Basically, the previous section that we addressed last week, verses 25 through 32 of chapter four, 
This is what Paul is referring back to here. He is saying, therefore, in view of everything that I have just said in the end of chapter 4, be imitators of God. All human beings, whether they're followers of Jesus or not, whether they admit it or realize it or not, have all been created in the image of God, which means that we are to reflect to the world who God is. Who is God? What are his attributes? He's loving. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's just. He's holy. He's good. He's faithful. He's powerful. And he's independent of us. Therefore, we as Christians, to the best of our ability, in the power of the Spirit, should imitate the characteristics with which we are able to imitate. And we cannot be independent of God. There are some of God's attributes that we cannot imitate. But there are others that we can. And so we are called to be image bearers of the one true God. This idea of the image of God goes all the way back into the book of Genesis. And Paul, in this passage, is talking to Christians. Now, we go back and forth in this book. Sometimes he's talking to non-Christian Gentiles. Sometimes he's talking to Gentile Christians. Sometimes he's talking to Jewish and Gentile Christians. This particular passage, he's talking to believers in Christ. And he calls them beloved children. This takes us back to Ephesians chapter 1. How is it that all followers of Jesus are his children? Paul has already unpacked this in chapter 1, verse 5, when he says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. All believers in Christ have been adopted into the family of God and have now become children of God of God. This is why adoption for us as Christians, adopting children is biblical because that is in fact what Christ did for us. So we encourage and if the Lord lays it on your heart to adopt, you should know you are obeying the scriptures. You are being obedient to what God has called you to do. When Christian couples decide to adopt and take someone into their family who is either unwanted, unloved, or incapable of being cared for, is that not what God did for us in our sin when we were unloved? Nobody had to want us. God chose to want us. God was in perfect fellowship with his son and with his spirit, and yet he chose to have relationship with us. If you're in Christ this morning, you're adopted. And we should rejoice that God loved us that much to do that. So number one, we imitate God, but we also, Paul tells us, walk in love. What is the why behind this walking in love? And it's very important. Because, Paul says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's why we walk in love. Because of what Christ did for us. Now in this passage we get one of the key components of the gospel message. That is the idea of substitution. It's really important. We talk about it a lot. The idea of substitution is that 
Jesus didn't just die for the generic sins of the world. He died specifically for you and for me in our place as our substitute so that if we are in Christ, God's wrath has been poured out on Jesus in our place for us because of his love for us. This is the idea of substitution. If you're in Christ today, the cost of your sin should have been eternal separation from God. The wrath of God poured out on us because of our sin, and Jesus stepped up and he died in our place as our substitute. That's how much Jesus loves sinners, that he gave up his life for them. He died as our substitute. Paul takes this one step further by explaining that this sacrifice that Jesus made was a fragrant offering. Now, this phrase is steeped in the Old Testament. You find fragrant offering 49 times in the Old Testament. And 25 of those times in the Old Testament, it is in the exact same phrase as you find it here in verse 2 of chapter 5. A fragrant offering was an offering that was given wholeheartedly and with full sincerity before God. God was pleased with the sacrifice of his son. It was a pure, it was a sincere sacrifice. And it wasn't done with any strings attached. That's what's really important. That the sacrifice that Christ made was not done with strings attached. It was done freely. Do you grasp the ramifications of what that means? That means if you're in Christ today... You follow him, you obey him, you love him in freedom. Not because that obedience, that love warrants or earns you a relationship with God, but because it is in freedom that you can freely go out and love him and serve him. Because you're not doing it in order to be made right with God. You're doing it knowing that you've already been made right with God. That changes everything. When you're serving under the obligation of, if I don't do this, I won't go to heaven. Or if I don't do this, God won't love me. You're obeying God with strings attached. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ died for you in your place. Receive the free gift of salvation, and then you will be compelled to go out and serve him and love others in complete freedom with absolutely no strings attached. We cannot love out of obligation. We love out of true love because of what Christ did by sending his son to die for us. How tragic is it when people here, other places all around the world, believe this, that if I do enough, God will accept me If I live a certain moral lifestyle, God will invite me into his kingdom. That's the message of religion. That's not the message of the gospel. The gospel is very clear that repent of your sin, believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross, and serve him in complete freedom. He offers the right for us to live a life of love with one another 
and with him because ultimately he is worth imitating. Number two, Paul challenges us here to reject immorality. Now, the specific type of immorality that Paul is addressing here in Ephesians 5 is sexual immorality. The Greek word for this is pornea. It's the word of, that we use for pornography. And sexual immorality here in Ephesians 5 and in other places in the New Testament is fornication, pornography, lust, hetero or homosexual relationships that are outside the confines of marriage, any homosexual relationship, whether in marriage or outside of marriage, these are all of the sexual sins that Paul is addressing in this passage. And I'm aware how sensitive this topic is. I'm preaching to a room full of people, including myself, that have friends maybe even family members, co-workers that are struggling sexually with perhaps one or more of these sins that we find in this passage. So I realize that it's 2022. I realize the sensitive nature of what Paul is addressing here. But the biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation is that all followers of Jesus are to reject sexual immorality. All sorts of sexual immorality. There is a writer and pastor by the name of Sam Alberry who has been tremendously helpful to me as I have studied this issue of sexual immorality, specifically homosexuality. And the reason that he has been so helpful to me is because he is somebody who is same-sex attracted. And yet he has vowed to live a life of celibacy before the Lord because ultimately his holiness matters more to him than living the lifestyle that Scripture contradicts. He wrote this excellent book. I would encourage you to get it. It's very short, maybe 60 pages. It's called, Is God Anti-Gay? And in that book, he lays out five practical ways that churches who believe that homosexuality is wrong, can actually still minister to people that are struggling through that. So I want to lay out for you those five practical issues that he mentions. Number one, and it's not just homosexuality, by the way, it's all sexual immorality. These points would apply. Number one, the church has to be a place where it's easier than it currently is, easier to talk about these things. If you can't come to your brothers and sisters in Christ and confess either the sin that's happening in your own life or the sin that's happening in someone close to you who is battling these types of issues, where can you go? Is this not the place where we gather to hold one another accountable, to encourage one another, to read scripture together, to confess sin together, to pray for one another when we know people that are struggling in these ways. So number one, we have to make the church a place where this is easier to talk about. Not condone the behavior, but where we feel like we can go to our brothers and sisters in Christ and talk about this. Number two, he says, churches need to do a better job of honoring singleness. If you read the scriptures, particularly Paul, he has some very 
wise things to say about being single in 1 Corinthians, where he basically says, if you're married, there's a lot of things that you're not going to be able to accomplish for the kingdom because you're married. So if, if you're single in the room today, let me tell you, exhaust your singleness to the glory of God. It is a gift that he has given you. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to not tell anybody about. If God has given you singleness, use it for the glory of God. There will be opportunities that you will have as a single brother or sister that those of us that are married and have families will not be able to do. And that is a blessing. And God wants to use you for his glory. So number two, we should honor singleness. Number three, we should remember that church is a family. This goes back to number one. If we're truly a family, we should be able to talk about these things. We should be able to pray with one another, confess sin, encourage one another, remember that church is a family. Number four, we should look closely to what the Bible says about masculinity and femininity, not what the culture says. This is really important. I've told y'all before, I don't hunt, I don't fish, I don't know how to do anything on my car except change a flat tire. And I'm an avid indoorsman. I love the air conditioning. (laughs) So by the world's standards, I'm not very manly. Okay? In the same way, there are women in this room that probably don't fit the cultural stereotypes about what makes one a woman. Crafts, wearing dresses, baking brownies. I'm not belittling any of these things. I'm just trying to think of things that regularly in culture, we often say, this is what makes you a man or this is what makes you a woman. What we need to do is look back in Genesis 1 and 2 about what God says makes a man and what God says makes a woman and not hold one another to these stereotypes of a manly man or a womanly woman. And then number five, we need to Provide good pastoral support for those that we know that are going through these sexually immoral sins that Paul addresses here. And that's, that's on me. We want to have a culture in this church where I want you to help me develop a culture in this church where you feel like you can come to me or other pastors on staff and share with us your sin or the sins of those that are close to you, so that we can pray with you, we can encourage you, we can sit down and read the scriptures together and intercede for those that we know that are battling through these issues. The body of Christ should be a a safe place for challenging issues like this, whether that be pornography, homosexuality, infidelity, lust, any sexual sin that you can think of. We've got to do a better job of being honest with one another. Paul goes on to talk about impurity in this passage and covetousness. Now, impurity here could include sexually immoral sins, but it probably means all moral impurity, not just sexual sins. So Paul is talking at a very broad level of all impurity. And then covetousness, some of your translations might have the word greed there. Greed is basically the opposite of moderation. Greed is a dangerous sin, as all sins are. But here's why greed is especially dangerous. 
Tim Keller tells this great story about how one time he was going through a sermon series on the seven deadly sins. And his wife Kathy told him, you watch, the week that you preach on greed will be the lowest attendance you have of all of the sins that you address. So he preached on greed that day after the service. It was true. That Sunday was the lowest Sunday of all of the seven deadly sins. Now the question is, why? It's not because people were afraid that they would go and feel guilty. It's because no one thinks they're greedy. Very few of us would ever admit that we're greedy. And the reason that is, is because we can always compare ourselves to somebody else who's more greedy than we are. So if you make $70,000 a year, there's always somebody making one hundred and fifty. dollars if you make 150, there's somebody making 500. If you make a million, there's baseball players making 40 million dollars a year. We can always compare ourselves to the next one up and think, I don't have a problem with greed. Look at this guy. Look at that person. And so we oftentimes look past the greed within our own hearts because we see other people that live far more greedy lives than us. But really at the core of greed, is this constant desire that we all have to accumulate more stuff, to want more, to never be satisfied with what it is that God has given us, to never be content. In other words, basically, stuff, money, whatever it is, it becomes our God functionally. Functionally, money becomes the thing that we worship. We might not say it out loud, but based on the way that we live our lives, oftentimes money becomes our functional God because that is what we're actually relying on to bring us fulfillment. We'll say out loud, it's God that brings fulfillment. It's his word that brings fulfillment. But if we're honest, it's getting that paycheck every other week that really just boosts our spirits. So greed is a very, very dangerous sin that Paul discusses here. And then he continues on in verse 4. And he discusses speech. And he talks about filthiness. Some translations you have might use the word obscene. This type of talk, it could have been sexual in nature, or it could have just been inappropriate talk that often happened among the wealthy at Greco-Roman banquets in the first century. Foolish talk, he talks about, is just meaningless chatter or conversation that detracts from edifying discussions. Crude joking can be defined, as one commentator said, by a clever wit that was consistently recognized as an admirable talent and that endeared one to others. So a way of thinking of crude joking would be, if you're sarcastic by nature, there's a certain amount of that that endears you to people. It makes you funny. It makes people laugh at you. It attracts, or people are attracted to you. But there's a line in which it becomes way too much. And it's a turnoff. And it actually can become sinful. That's what Paul is talking about here when he talks about crude joking. But instead, Paul says, let's be characterized as a people that are thankful. That operate with a heart and a mind and a tongue of thanksgiving. Why is that so important? When you have a spirit of thankfulness, it is very difficult to speak in any of the ways that Paul talks about here. If you're thankful, there won't be a lot of crude joking. 
If you're thankful, there won't be a lot of foolish talk. If you're thankful to God for what he's done for you, there will not be a lot of filthiness or obscene talk coming out of your mouth. So Paul contrasts how believers should speak versus how the world speaks. Paul concludes all of this negative behavior by telling the Ephesian Christians this sobering thought that those that practice these behaviors have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's a sobering passage. What is Paul teaching us here? Is he teaching us that if any of us in this room have ever been guilty of any sexual immoral behavior, of any unholy speech, as Paul writes about here, is he saying that if we have ever done that, we will not receive the inheritance of Christ? The answer is no. It is not what he is teaching. How do we know that? Because we go to our Bibles and see what Paul said earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Chapter 4, verse 30 says this, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit seals those that are in Christ for an inheritance that they will one day receive. But here's what you need to read, and here's what Paul is saying. But these types of behaviors that are described here, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, if those behaviors persist without genuine repentance, then yes, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is not unique to Paul. This is the message of the gospel. When Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel, Mark chapter 1. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin when it comes to salvation. It's not that we believe in faith and we keep on acting the way that we've always acted. No, no, no. The message of the gospel is repentance and faith. Not faith and non-repentance, and not repentance and no faith. It is both. It is two sides of the same coin. So for people in this passage that Paul is describing in Ephesus, here is how John would describe what's going on in the lives of these people who are persisting in sin but are not repenting of this, their sins. Here's what the Bible would say. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now that's a lot of pronouns. You need to actually look at it and not just hear me say it. But what John is saying there is, the way that those people behave, no repenting, proves that they were in fact never in Christ to begin with because 
A follower of Jesus is one who repents of their sin and believes in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now, this is not to say that Christians will not struggle with sins. They will not have sins that they battle with their entire life. We all do. I've talked to you about my road rage, right? I'm constantly battling that desire to not ram somebody in front of me when I feel like they should go and they don't. So it's a daily battle, whatever that besetting sin is for you, anger, pride, greed, selfishness, lust, homosexuality, pornography, whatever it might be. But the kicker is genuine repentance. That when you engage in those behaviors, the Holy Spirit brings conviction upon your heart. You confess that sin and you strive through the power of the Spirit to leave that sin. It doesn't mean that you won't fall short again, but that you are striving through the power of the Spirit to live in holiness. One of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is sanctification. That is one of the roles of the Spirit. And if these types of behaviors that Paul is talking about continue to regularly characterize people with no remorse, no conviction, no repentance ever for those sins, then we who are in Christ should treat those people as non-believers and evangelize them and share the gospel with them and pray for them and show them clearly what the scriptures teach. And we should plead with them to repent and believe in the gospel the same way that we have. So we have to reject immorality as followers of Christ. But number three, we also have to avoid deception. If you read at all, whether a book or on the internet, in 2022... It's easier than ever before to find someone who agrees with your premises about whatever sin it is that you want to justify. It's out there. There are commentators, theologians on all spectrums that can come up with proof text to justify or explain away things that are clearly in the text. So what is Paul saying here? He is saying, avoid deception. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Here is a principle that I've shared with you before when it comes to digging deep into the text and reading lots of commentaries and trying to understand what Paul means or what Jesus means or, or what Moses means. When you read commentaries, when you read things on the internet, if the person that you're reading is working really, really hard to explain away what is clearly in the text, that is a sign that you probably should not believe what they're teaching. And it's out there. You can find it. We can get so nuanced in our studies, and we can do word studies and say, well, Paul really didn't mean this type of sin. He meant it within the context of a certain type of relationship or something like that. It's a dangerous place to be when we begin to take passages and find scholars or even pastors or theologians that present one view of things to explain away what's verbatim in the biblical text. And, and even us as Bible-believing 
followers of Jesus. We all have certain people that we like to read, that we like to study, right? So we can be guilty of it too. But to the best of our ability, using the power of the Holy Spirit given to us to illuminate the scriptures, we should do what God's word clearly teaches. Do not be deceived, Paul says. The wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. And while in this particular context, what we've studied today, he's talking a lot about sexual immorality and things with our speech, but the wrath of God is coming on all sons of disobedience, no matter what sin it is, for all that have not repented and professed their faith in Christ. Greed, malice, slander, jealousy, murder, theft, idolatry, and any other sin you want to name, the wrath of God is coming on all of those that do not repent of their sin and believe in the gospel. That's why every single week I call people to repentance to believe in the good news of the gospel. This is a call to the lost, but it is also a call to the saved. If you're in Christ today, you need repentance just as much today as you did when you first received Christ. If you're lost, you know that a just God, based on everything we've sang today and all the scripture passages that we've read, a just God will not allow sin to go unpunished. But the good news of the gospel is that we can repent of our sin. We can believe in the good news of Jesus. And when we do that, the wrath of God has been poured out on Christ for us rather than on us. That's the beauty of the gospel. But Christians in the room, we must have a spirit of humility, a spirit of gentleness, a spirit of grace and compassion and love for all of those that are not in Christ, no matter what sin it is they're dealing with. Why should we be the ones to act this way? Because that is how God acted towards us. And if the spirit of God is in us, We should be exhibiting the same attributes that God bestowed upon us when he saved us. Christians, it's more important than ever that we are people of character. We can have all of the head knowledge. We can have all of the Bible verses memorized. We can know all the doctrine and the theology But how we live it out is more important today, perhaps, than it's ever been. So we, as the image bearers of God, should reflect who he is to a lost world. And the church of Jesus Christ, as we always say, is the gospel made visible to the community. And so the church should be a place of, number one, holiness, but number two, grace and mercy and compassion towards those that are not in Christ because that is what Christ did for us. Let's pray. God, this passage is such a sobering reminder to all of us how important it is for us to regularly confess our sin and to repent of our sin. And I'm fearful that sometimes myself and 
others of us that are followers of Jesus. Sometimes it's like we're ashamed to repent. When in reality, repentance should be an act of worship. Where we can boldly, confidently approach your throne and know that when we confess our sin, you are there to forgive us. So I pray that if, if we have the heart where repentance is, we view it more like a chore than an act of worship. Would you just change our hearts? Because you want to hear from your children. You love your children. You forgive your children. And so we want to have that spirit where when we approach you in our time every day, whether that be in the morning, lunch, night, whenever, and we confess those sins to you, Yes, there might be a sense of discouragement, but ultimately we are delighted to bring our sins before you because we know that you forgive. And we thank you for forgiveness made possible through your son, Jesus. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.